Well, praise God, with this uh, last paragraph that happens to be again in chapter number 12, we come to a major turning point that happens to be again in the gospel. We realize again as we uh, end off at these first 12 chapters, it's many times called the first half of the gospel. In fact, it is the first half of the gospel of John, and it's many times called the book of signs. And the reason why it's called a book of signs is because John chooses these specific signs to show the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, show beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is Messiah and that uh, believing in him that you would have life through his name. So he shows us these signs and he interprets, again, these various different signs and how they point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and, and again, the whole purpose is that we might have life in his name. And it is amazing because in verse number 36, we read, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And what this means is that this is the end of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. You know, he's going to take whatever time that he has left, and he's going to invest it in his disciples, preparing them not only for the crucifixion, but also their ministry that they're going to have after the crucifixion. You know, and as we look at this, um, this text, it, it is amazing to see the rejection of Jesus Christ. And we realize it didn't take Jesus by surprise, and it didn't take, again, God by surprise. In fact, John interprets or he quotes Isaiah to tell us that this was God's doing. You know, the hardening of the Jews at this time, certainly they're responsible for their sin, but at the end, what came to pass was exactly what God wanted to come to pass. And I think it's amazing that even some of the religious leaders, and I think it would be really hard not to know that Jesus was the Christ. They even believed that Jesus was the Christ, but they wouldn't come openly and profess faith in him. And the reason why... It's because they love the glory of man rather than the glory of God. And it's amazing to even think about that, because as you think about that, um, uh, we, we realize that these individuals were really not saved individuals. And, that's, and with these words of uh, Jesus here in this final paragraph, we come to the end of this chapter. And let me just say this, that a lot of people think that this is not uh, chronological, but what this is, is basically a synopsis of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, the preaching of the Lord Jesus, you know, and what you have here. Now, whether it happened to be true, uh, true or not, I really don't know. You know, sm smarter men than I many times debate those things, but I really don't know. But one of the things that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that these, these truths that happen to be taught in this last paragraph were absolutely essential and absolutely important to the Lord Jesus. In fact, we have read at the beginning of verse number 44, it says, and Jesus cried out. And when we look at those words, cried out, it speaks again of deep emotion, doesn't it? You know, and the reason why I bring that out is because many times I think we picture Jesus just as a stoic individual. You know, just as this individual got up and he gave forth truth, and if anyone believed on him, that was swell. If anyone re rejected him, he was unmoved. And, and, it is, and it's farthest thing from, from, the, from the truth. Jesus was a very emotional preacher. And the reason why is because he really cared about the glory of God. And he really cared about the plight of those who happened to be again around him. And so he would preach emotionally. You know, and it's amazing to look at this because, because Jesus is man, isn't he? He's perfect man, and he has these emotions. In fact, we have five times that Jesus cried out in the Gospels. Two, two of them are at the cross. One is in Matthew 27, 46, and it says in about the ninth hour, here it is, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemus sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 50 of the same chapter, it says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
And you can almost feel the emotion from that. You know, we, we found that he cried out uh, on, the, uh, day, on, on the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, verse number 37. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. And think of the emotion coming out of him and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is where life is found. This is the only place that life is found, life-giving water. And it's in Jesus Christ and him alone. And the other time happened to be again at Lazarus' uh, tomb. And we, we'll remember all the emotion that happens to be again around it, all the grief. And then we read in John chapter 11 and verse number 43, it says, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the reason why I bring that up is because when we come to this text, when we see the emotion of Jesus, whether it happens to be on the cross, whether it happens to be on the Feast of Tabernacles, whether it happens to be again at Lazarus' uh, grave, when we see that phrase cried out, we know that the truths that are going to come out are absolutely essential to Jesus. They're absolutely important to him. And if they're important to him, don't you think they should be important to us? You know, don't, don't you think beyond a shadow? It's incredible the things that many times occupy our hearts and occupy our minds. But I wonder how, how many times when we look at these truths that Jesus passionately taught and preached, how, how many of these truths are really important to us? How many times they occupy our minds and our hearts and our passions, even towards other people? Well, I want to take a few moments this afternoon to really look at those words. Look at that passionate preaching. And I want to see as I see that passionate Passionate preaching is around three things. And the first thing, again, that he passionately preached, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that every individual needed to believe on him. You know, and you can see that in verses 44 and following, because look what it says, And Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And it's incredible. Look, uh, I, I'm always amazed at Sunday because every Sunday throughout the world, believers gather together, don't they? They, they gather in these local assemblies called churches. You know, and a lot of times, the larger the church especially, people who gather together will come up to other individuals. In fact, we had some visitors this morning, didn't we? And we come up and we try to get to know them, and a lot of times we'll ask them this question, do you know Jesus? You know, and if they say yes, then we shake their hands, we hug them, we give them a high five or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but we recognize that they are in the faith. But I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the, the best question that we can ask someone to ascertain if they are in the faith or not is, what do you think of Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? I think that's a more accurate question. So, so many individuals can say that they believe Jesus, but what are they believing in Jesus about? What are they hoping that he's going to do in their life? Why are they trusting him? What do they believe in his personhood he has come to do? And so I think a better question is, you know, Jesus said, believe on me, believe on me, believe on me. But it's always taught in context, isn't it? It always has a content about it. You know, and you see this in the passionate preaching of Jesus. Jesus basically taught three truths about himself, and he taught them over and over and over and over again. And one of the truths that he preached about himself is that he is at one with the Father and also uh, sits with the Father. Otherwise, he's God in human flesh. 
right? He is God. He is part, again, of this, what we call the triunity. But there's an order that happens begin in that true triunity. And you can see this in verse number 44. It says, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And here you have the oneness. You have the oneness of the Father with the Son, right? If you believe on me, you believe in the Father. And I think that's so important for us to think of, especially in a day and age that we live in. You hear this so often. I believe in the God of the, here it is, the Old Testament. I believe in the God of the New Testament. I don't believe in the God of Old Testament. I don't believe in the creation story. I don't believe in the plagues that came over Egypt or whatever it happened to be. You know, and let me just say this, if you believe in God the Father, truly believe in Him, then you believe in the Son. If you believe in the Son, you believe in God the Father. It's a package. You know, God cannot be divided. To say, oh, well, I don't believe in the Son, I believe, you can't. You know, and that's what Jesus is saying right here. You know, I have come, I have come, and I have been sent. And to realize that, Jesus was sent by God the Father. In other words, there's an economy Right? There's an order that happens to be in the uh, tr- uh, Trinity. And here's God the Father, and he sends the Son. We're going to find later that the Spirit is sent by both Father and Son. But there's an order that happened to be there, and that's so important. And it's so important to realize because it really has a bearing on how we live in this and function in this world. You know, I was asked a question. I'm always asked questions about God. I don't know, maybe because I'm a pastor or something like that. But I can remember one question I was asked one day. It was a real good question. You know, but the, uh, I could see there was a kind of frustration in the individual who asked this question. It was basically this. You know, if there's a God that happened to be in heaven, and if he's holy, if he's righteous, if he's all good, why do we have so much evil in the world? Why hasn't God done anything? And to me, that's the easiest question in the world. Because God has done something. He's done something so extraordinary, so amazing, that if we didn't read it in the scriptures, we'd never believe it. He sent his son to planet Earth to live that perfect life, die that substitutionary uh, death that we might have life forevermore before him. And he rose from the grave and everything that is broken is going to be mended. Everything that's crooked is going to be made straight. And evil is going to be banished forever because Jesus has come. I mean, that's the message, isn't it? You know, and that's the message that Jesus is proclaiming. When he says, believe in me, we're believing this about his person. He's one with the Father. He has come on a specific mission from the Father God. And the second necessary truth, again, that he preached, and the reason why he wanted people, again, to believe in him, and he kept on calling people to believe in him, is because of this in verse number 45. He says, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I love that truth, don't you? Because, because it's, incre- it's people everywhere are asking these various different questions that happen to begin out there, right? And they ask this, these philosophical questions. What is God like? You know, what's he like? Is he real? You know, how, how can you know God? And here's the amazing thing. The invisible God has been made manifest, has been made visible through Jesus Christ, right? God is spirit, How do I see spirit? How do I know what God is like? Here's the clearest manifestation, the clearest revelation. And that is, again, God has come in human flesh. You know, Revelation uh, chapter uh, 1, verse number 3 says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Did you get that? Right? When you look at the sun, when you look at the radiance that comes from the sun, that's who Jesus Christ is. You know, he's giving off that radiance. He's showing, again, what the sun is. 
When he says he's the exact imprint, it's just like hot wax. And here I have a signet ring, and I put it in, and I take it away, and it has that exact mark that happens to be in there, that exact seal. That's who the sun is. So when I look at the sun, when I study the sun, when I see in the Gospels who the sun is, I recognize who God is, right? I see holiness. I see righteousness. I see a single-minded purpose to glorify this great God above. I see grace. I see truth. I see mercy. I see compassion. I see perseverance. And I see this extraordinary love, you know, and that's what it is. I mean, when you think about it, you know, the uniqueness of our creation is that we're made in the image of God, but we realize that image is marred. So we don't know, again, so much about what God is like by looking at one another because it's so marred by sin. But imagine if the perfect man came and lived perfectly before holy God, what would it be a reflection of? It'd be a reflection of that perfect image. And one of the things that surprises me so often, because you would think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if we could know God, if we could see God through the Gospels, one of the things that really perplexes me is how many times we are not over, overly infatuated, overly consumed with knowing the Jesus of the Gospels, really going into the Gospels and looking at those portraits of who Jesus truly is. Because when we see who Jesus is, we understand who God is. So you can imagine Jesus preaching passionately, caring about people, and recognizing that he is none other than God in human flesh, recognizing beyond a shadow of doubt that if these individuals truly wanted to know God, it's only found in him. He's the clearest manifestation, clearest revelation of who God is. But he goes on and gives a third truth, and this is why he preached, believe in me, because in verse number 46, he says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me uh, may not remain in darkness. And that's a theme If you go through the Gospel of John and you look at light and darkness, light and darkness, light and darkness, light and darkness, you find it in every chapter. You find it again as you go through again every time. And they're major themes, right? This world is a dark world. The light of Jesus Christ has come in. I mean, how do I follow God? How do I find forgiveness of sins? How am I made right with God? Here it is. Look to me. Look to me. I am the light. I will show you the way. Salvation is found in me. You know, A.W. Pink comments on this. He says, this verse continues John's reference to the general teaching of Christ concerning the character and tendency of his mission. He had come here into the world as a light revealing God and exposing man. And this in order that all who believe on him should, not, should be delivered from darkness. That is the power of Satan and the ruin of sin. And that's basically salvation, isn't it? The power of Satan is the darkening effect that having to begin over our life and the ruination again of sin. Where's the answer found? It's found in Jesus Christ. So you can imagine, again, as Jesus stood up, again, he wasn't a stoic preacher. You know, he stood up and cried out, believe on me, and this is why you need to believe on me. I'm the God-man. I am one with the Father. I am sent by the Father on a specific mission. You know, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, when you look at me, you see God. And when you see God, you see, again, that you don't have to remain in darkness. You can have this light, this eternal life that comes from him. 
And that's why you preach passionately. But a second reason why you preach passionately, not only to believe on him, but to recognize the problem. And the problem is that there's an impending judgment coming upon every single person. Every single person that has ever lived or ever will live will one day appear before this awesome and glorious God. And look at what he says in verses 47 and 48. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to, uh, come into to the world to judge, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. Now, let me just say this. I don't think we like the subject of, ju- of uh, judgment. I, I, I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, when we hear judgment many times, again, we turn away from it. And I think a lot of times we are, we're often embarrassed by it. You know, that we believe in eternal judgment. We believe in, in, in an eternal hell. You know, an eternal place, again, of judgment. In, in the final resting place of the damned, which happens to be a lake of fire. And I think a lot of times we almost are apologetic about it. You know, the, coming to this passage of Scripture, it's going to talk about hell. We'll try and get through it. You know, we'll, we'll, try, we'll try and be brief that happened to be again right here. But let me just say, Jesus taught passionately about the judgment to come. Right? And we all know this, that Jesus talked more about hell than he did about the bliss of heaven. But let me just even go further. Jesus described the judgment to come. Right? He described it in clear terms that people would know, again, the horrendous nature. And why? Because he cared about the glory of God and he cared about individuals who were under that judgment of God. You know, it's now time to flee that judgment. And he would use words like fire, you know, eternal fire, eternal bl- uh, uh, brimstone, uh, where the worm never dies, where there's utter darkness, where there's no hope. And this lasts for all of eternity. And if you ever wonder if there's a judgment that comes, uh, comes after this, li- this life, all you have to do is look at the words of Jesus. And when you look at the words of Jesus beyond a shadow of a doubt, you have his word for it, that there is a judgment that will come on all who have not trusted Jesus. And look at verse number 47 again, again, because he says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world, uh, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And why did Jesus come? You know, this is not hard, is it? This is not rocket, rocket science. Well, why did, why did Jesus come? And Jesus came, what? To provide what? Because with an S. He came to provide salvation, right? right? That's why he came. He came to give his life as a ransom f- uh, for many. In fact, he says, as he's thinking about the events that are just about to transpire, he's on the eve again of all of these events that are ready to trans- transpire. And he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then right after that, he says this, now, my, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, no. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Right? This is why I've come, to give my life as a perfect ransom for sin. That's why he's come. Now, think of it. That's why Jesus has come. Jesus is not coming to, to judge the world yet. There's many scriptures that talk about Jesus being the end-time judge. You know, we, as such as in chapter number 5, in verse number 27, it says, And he has given him authority, speaking of the Son, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. So God the Father has given authority to the Son to judge every single person. So how can he say, I am not the judge? And this is why. 
Because he always reads scripture in context, right? And look at what it says in the very next verse. It says, because he's explaining what he means by this. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words. In other words, does not receive this gospel has a judge. Well, what's the judge? The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. Boy, talk about a sobering passage of scripture. Really a sobering passage of scripture. We realize that every single person that has ever lived will be judged by the light that they have been given. So if you uh, never heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be judged by the general revelation that happens to be around you that speaks there is a holy God that happens to be in heaven. He is absolutely righteous. He is absolutely awesome. And you'll be judged by that revelation. But can you imagine hearing the gospel? Can you imagine hearing hearing the gospel preached to you over and over and over and over and over again, and you never respond to that gospel? You know, and what Jesus Christ says is these words are going to come back at that end time judgment and be a judgment upon you. You know, and I wonder how how, how many times, because we're so fixated on life, aren't we? We're so fixated on the here and now. We're so fixated on some sort of general happiness. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be joyous, wanting to be happy in the here and now. But it happens to be, again, our, our whole fixation. And I wonder how many times we think about death. I wonder how many times we think about judgment. I wonder how many times that we think about coming into the presence of God. I mean, if we've never repented of our sins and never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, what, what are we going to say to, to uh, Jesus Christ in that day? You, you know, what, what kind of excuse are we going to give him? And I know people, people because I've talked to them uh, again before, always come up with various different uh, uh, reasons why they have rejected uh, Christ. You know, and they're spurious, but it's something that you can appease their mind, cross their arms, and say, this is why. Or they might look at another believer and, say, and, and see some inconsistency in him or her life and say, say they're, they're, they're all hypocrites. And they might be all hypocrites, but in that day of judgment, after you have heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the call of Jesus Christ through the gospels, I mean, what are you going to say to Jesus Christ in that day? These very words are going to come come back to you and be a judgment against you. You know, and that's what Jesus Christ is saying again right here. He's going to be the end time judge, but this very gospel, and those again who have heard this gospel and have not trusted him, and have you trusted him? You know, have you trusted him? Do you realize the eternality again of judgment? So you can imagine Jesus standing up, and he realizes more clear, he has a clearer mind than you and I have ever had. He realizes the need of trusting in him. He realizes the very people that he's preaching to are in eternal danger. And you can imagine, this is not stoic preaching. This is not preaching, well, this is my opinion on it, you know. It's passionate preaching. And because it's so passionate, it's so necessary that it happened to begin in your life. This is the third element, again, of his preaching, is that when he preaches the gospel, he preaches it, here it is, as a command, not as a suggestion, not just as some light invitation, whether you can take it or you can leave it and go on with your life. He preaches it as a command. And look at verses 49 and 50, again, right here, that end off our chapter. He says, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. 
You know, and we often talk about, and there's a sense where this is true, where the gospel is an invitation. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? You know, because I think a lot of times when we think of an invitation, we think of Jesus over there and he's pleading for people to come, you know, and he's rolling his, his uh, thumbs and there's nothing that he could do. You know, he's just heartbreaking, uh, broken. That happens to be over here. You have to realize who God is. God is the all authoritative God. And you have to realize what the gospel is. The gospel is his truth. It's his message. It's his way. And so as the all-authoritative God, he, plan, he, he commands men and women everywhere to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not a mere suggestion. It's not a mere, again, light alternative to various different ways that you can come to him. And this is what we Why does Jesus articulate these tr- uh, truths? He says, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment what to say, and what to speak. So, so do you see the importance of Jesus' words? The very words of Jesus Christ are the very words of the Father. Right? Everything that comes, Jesus is not giving some opinion that differs from the Father, and the Father has different opinions that happen to be over there. Jesus has one message, and the message is the truth. This is the truth. You know, so when we open up the Word of God, when we open up the Scriptures, when we read the Scriptures, when we read the life of the Lord Jesus, we're reading the truth again of God. And why is that so important? It's so important because of this. And I want you to get this. Christianity has a very, very, very radical message. And what I mean by radical, it goes against everything and everyone. Right? And the reason why I say that is because a radical message in and of itself, is always offensive. Isn't it? So this is how we downplay it. You, you know, what do you believe about heaven and hell? Well, this is just my opinion. Let me say, it's not your opinion. It is the truth of God. Right? So when the scriptures speak about eternal um, realities, it speaks authoritatively. Right? We realize that. You know, how does one get to heaven? How, 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 do, how, how is one made right with God? Even on social issues. This is where it becomes, well, you know, we've got one opinion, each, each his own. You know, when it speaks on moral issues, whether it happens to be abortion, whether it happens to be same-sex marriage, whether it happens to be, again, homosexuality, let me tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is not your opinion or my opinion. This is it not, we can agree to disagree. This is the very word of God. And think of it, because Jesus knew this. He knew his oneness with God the Father. He knew, again, the, tri- the order of the, trin- uh, the uh, Trinity. And he knew beyond a shadow of doubt when he spoke, he spoke under the authority of the very words that the Father wanted him to speak. And so when Jesus says, this is right, this is right. When Jesus says, this is wrong, this is wrong. When Jesus says, this is the way to salvation, this is the way to salvation. When Jesus says, there is this kind of judgment to come, this is the kind of judgment to come. And may we never think beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know what the word of God says, but may we never have that kind of attitude. You know, this is the very word of God. This seals it. This is a done deal, isn't it? You know, when, when, when Christ again speaks, and he realizes this. And look at the last verse that happens to be again of the chapter. And he says, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. That's key right there. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say 
as the Father as to, has told me. In other words, as a perfect man. And notice that phrase right there. He says, his command is eternal life. And just before this, he talked about the command of the Father that, that had been given to him, and he speaks this command. You know, and the thing that you have to understand again about this, in fact, in verse number 47, he even says, if anyone hears my word and does not keep them. Think of it, does not keep them. In other words, there's a command going up. And this is what the command is. The command is keep this word where eternal life is found. Now, there is a problem. And the problem is, again, when you hear that word command, we want to object to it. We want to say that's not what salvation That's not the way I've learned salvation. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is by grace. And if that's what you thought salvation was, then you're absolutely right. But the question we have to ask is, what's the command? What is Jesus Christ commanding us to do? And it's right at the beginning of the paragraph, and he says, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. What's the command? The command is this, whoever believes in me. You know, that's where salvation is found. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this one I I want you to understand. Salvation is not an option. Salvation is not a suggestion. Salvation is not, again, you can either choose A, B, C. Well, if you're going to go C, you know, Jesus is over here. He's A. But C is an alternative that happened to be there. Jesus Christ is not an option. The gospel is not an option. It is a command from a holy God to repent and trust in Jesus. You see, it was a Philippian jailer. In Acts chapter 16 and verse number 30 and following, it says, Then he, uh, then he brought them out and said, and this is a Philippian j- uh, jailer speaking, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What, I, what must I do? And here comes the command. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved in your household. That's the command. The command is to believe. And when Paul's on, uh, in Athens preaching and calling on others to believe on the Lord Jesus, he says in Acts chapter 17 this, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And look at who he is. And this is he who has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? It is a command. Repent and trust in Jesus. James Boyce uh, says these helpful words. He says, this is not something to be toyed with. This is not something to be delayed. God is our master. And he orders us to turn from sin and respond to him. I do not want to seem harsh. Of course, the call to to believe on Jesus is an invitation. It is out of love that the Lord Jesus Christ offers the command, speaks the word. It is out of love that God calls upon us to repent. But at the same time, the matter of belief is not optional. It is required of us. Therefore, listen to what he says. To fail to believe is not just a misfortune. It is sin. And may I say it's high-handed sin against God? You know, when he has provided this way of salvation? Now, think about it. Do you see a stoic preacher in Jesus? You know, with these truths? Do you see? Yeah, you need to believe on me. This is who I am. This is my oneness with the Father. This is salvation. This is a judgment to come. There is no 
other way. This message has come from my father. This message, again, is eternal life. You can imagine, again, how passionately he preaches, but how passionately do we hold these truths? How passionately do we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? We get caught up in so many different things in our life. But how passionately do we hold to the truths that Jesus Christ passionately taught? May all of us, again, see these truths and live in light of them. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, what an amazing, amazing gospel. What an amazing Savior. God, so often we get these caricatures Lord, maybe they're from popular media or whatever it happens to be. But many times we look at Jesus as just a stoic personality. Lord, after all, he's, he is God in human flesh, the very God who is immutable and unchangeable. But Lord, at the same time, we recognize that he came as he interacted with in time. There was a way that the immutable God, the perfect man, would have to function, would have to respond to various different situations. Lord, there had to be, again, a way that a perfect God, the perfect human, Lord, would have to communicate these truths to fallen humanity. And we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the example he has set for us and how, Lord, we are to preach, how we are to teach, how we are to beg sinners to recognize who Jesus Christ is, Lord, and recognize the horrors of the judgment to come and recognize beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is not an option. Lord, there's no plan B, C, D, or E, or F. But, Lord, the, you, have made, you have made one option, one way, one path, Lord, and it's a narrow path. May we be brave enough to call sinners, Lord, men and women, to Jesus Christ again. May we be passionate about the same things that Jesus Christ was passionate about. We thank you and love you. Just be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother. I was going to say, someone wants you to go longer, Pastor. <laughs>